Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello and welcome to Belaboring the Point. I'm your host, Kate Riga. I'm joined here by TPM's very own Josh Marshall after we just wrapped a conversation with TPM's other own Hunter Walker and Lupe Lupin, who have just finished up a book about some of the internal divisions of the Democratic Party. You know, their book kind of stretches back to the 2020 campaign. And in our conversation, I think we connected it to a lot of the bigger narrative themes that are kind of big topics of conversation today. So so what do you think, Josh? Terrible conversation. Nobody should listen. Like, super flop. Yeah, this is this is a great book that I actually read a few months ago because I blurbed it. And one of the interesting things is, as you said, it's about divisions in the Democratic Party, but it's actually about how the party overcame those divisions in 2020. So it's a sort of a Democrats in array history of the last five years. And I thought the conversation about it was really great. You know, I think the book is a fascinating one. It's it's a narrative history, not like a, a manifesto or takes or something like that. And we had a really, a really enjoyable and interesting discussion of it. And we're also going to publish an excerpt from it on TPM. Yeah, I think what's most interesting is the book is kind of a corrective to this idea that's constantly laundered through, you know, mainstream media and the Beltway media and everything that progressives are the problem and that they're, um, they have these like unrealistic expectations and they can't temper that with the realities of legislating. And even after Biden's first term, I think that's still like the most default set for those stories. You know, like that's, you can tell people are trying to shape the stories into those contours. Um, And that was not at all the story of his first two years and particularly the story of the biggest legislative accomplishments of his presidency so far, which were achieved kind of on the backs of progressives with, as Hunter and Lupe call these radical centrists being, you know, the, the biggest source of kind of consternation during those negotiations. Yeah, I mean, w- one thing, as you said, you know, that there was always that in the the BBB and Inflation Reduction Act era, a lot of the coverage was still framed around progressives and centrists, the divisions between progressives and centrists. But as we get into in in our discussion, in most of those cases, what we were calling centrists here were like three people, and then the entirety of the Democratic Party, and so. Most, the great majority of the people who, in any real sense, we have called progress, uh, you know, kind of centrists or the establishment or something like that, 
were voting uh, voting the same way that the progressives were and were voting, you know, voting with with Biden's plan. So in a lot of ways, it, it gets into the ways that that model had had broken down. And, uh, you know, that's how we got to supposedly one whole faction of the Democratic Party was actually this dude from West Virginia and this kind of very strange woman from Arizona. You know, weird. Totally. And I think where the conversation got the most snarled is like the future and some of these big pressing questions about the 2024 election. Because, I mean, obviously, every single Democrat or Democratic adjacent person is like bedwetting nightly over Biden's you know, over young voters' seemingly apathy towards Biden, his age issues, um, questions of if he can rebuild the coalition from 2020, and you know the the disconnect between his legislative accomplishments and his like quite progressive governing and the base's dissatisfaction with him. And I thought that that tension was so interesting because he managed to kind of do this incredible thing, which was unify the party in a way that Obama wasn't necessarily able to do and, and to get progressives not only to buy in, but to really trust him. Like there's a lot of details in the book about these very kind of nice, serious relationships between progressive members of Congress, of, of Congress and the Biden administration. And yet we're on the precipice of 24 when Biden has like governed the way that kind of young people profess to want to be governed. And he's still facing huge kind of fall offs with that group. And then it raises a bunch of other questions, which we kind of got into about is the issue that young people are not uniformly progressive. And that is a shorthand that is not capturing the moment. Is it because you've got these young people who are disaffected and not really paying attention at all? And so are really more than what we think of as young voters, low information voters, right? So it's just all I think a lot of those threads kind of shot through our conversation and shoot through the book and are instrumental when we're thinking of like, what is next for the Democratic Party? Yeah, one thing just to conclude our introduction to the to the conversation you're about to hear is I think we got into that in a lot of this discussion of centrists and progressives, when we talk about, you know, the progressives, in, in some ways, there's kind of at least three different things we're talking about. On the one hand, we're talking about electoral progressives, people who are in office who are, who are progressive. Um, we're also talking about electoral progressives versus the progressivism of the street, and by which I mean like protest politics. Again, a lot of overlap, but they're distinct. And then finally, generational politics. You know, what do people under 30 care about? And what is their level of involvement in politics? And those are all really key issues that were key in 2020. And that's what this book is about, that kind of unexpected rapprochement. And they're key to 2024. And they overlap, but they're distinct. And when we think about things that, that seem contradictory or don't seem to fit, often they fit once we kind of step back a little and see that, okay, when we're talking about progressives or the base or stuff like that. It's those three things are kind of mixed together, but they each have dynamics that are unique to them. And just for this, you'll hear in this conversation that we're about to share with you here, we've talked a lot about progressives. And that's, that's clearly, in a lot of ways, what is what we're talking about for 2024. We're talking about the youth vote 
we're talking about is is Biden going to be able to pull back into the fold basically younger voters who are some mix of very progressive and just disaffected but the book that again I I I read a few months ago and is 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 really good the book is about both sides of that of that uh, divide in the Democratic Party the establishment wing the more moderate wing what you know that Joe Biden is from and the more progressive wing that in 2020 was was uh, Bernie Sanders wing and and how those two groups learned to uh, work together in 2020 and had a successful election and I think to many of us have had a successful legislative three years in office as long as we understand that legislating with 50 votes in the Senate is, you know, you don't get everything you want. But with that, I guess, Kate, you want to lead us into the to the main part of our discussion? Yeah. And with that, enjoy um, our conversation with Hunter and Lupe on their new book and uh, all these myriad narratives that it touches on. So enjoy. Hello and welcome to Belaboring the Point. I'm your host, Kate Riga. Today, TPM's own Josh Marshall and I will chat with two very special guests, authors of the upcoming book, The Truce, Progressive Centrist and the Future of the Democratic Party, which is out January 23rd. So today we're joined by Hunter Walker, TPM investigative reporter and former White House correspondent, and Lupe Lupin, a lawyer reporter and commentator who lives in New York City. Hunter and Lupe, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us on. So to start, can you just like give our listeners kind of the elevator pitch thesis of the book and what you both set out to understand by writing it? So I think this book gets to a couple questions that a lot of people have right now. And just to set the stage a bit, obviously, there's been this glut of reporting on Donald Trump and how we got Donald Trump, as, as everyone's been sort of reeling over the past seven years. And there hasn't been as much reporting on the Democratic Party and the other side of the aisle. And I think especially with the 2024 election you know, approaching, people have started to sort of look back on that and ask questions about, you know, A, what happened to this Bernie Sanders progressive movement that made so much noise in 2016 and 2018. And then also in conjunction with that, how did we end up with Joe Biden? And how did we get this sort of elderly centrist figure who seems out of step with a lot of the momentum um, that certainly the younger wing of his party has had in recent years? Uh, so our book really dives into that. And I think we we came up with some answers to some of those questions. You know, firstly, and you see that in this excerpt that uh, we're running on TPM, you know, I think Bernie, especially in 2020, came a lot closer to victory than people realize. Ultimately, you know, Biden did manage to win. Part of that was sheer luck. Some of that was the remaining institutional strength of the Democratic Party. But also some of that, and, you know, I think one of the myths of Joe Biden is this, you know, Republican caricature of him as almost a Manchurian candidate being kind of puppet mastered through his old age. Uh, but he is a savvy operator. And you get some glimpses of that in this book. And one of the things he did was forge an alliance with the progressives. So the progressives didn't go away. They kind of became part of the Biden ascendancy. And that's the titular truce uh, that we explore in this story. Yeah, the alliance was one of the most fascinating pieces of the book to me, especially how it kind of took place during the campaign and how it 
transcended that division when when Biden got elected. Can you guys kind of talk about that a little bit? And particularly, I'm kind of obsessed with the Jayapal-Ron Klain relationship. Like that was so fascinating. Well, sure. And I, I think the, um, you know, the, the sort of spark for that comes out of the caucus night in Iowa in 2020, where you have this sudden and unexpected problem of no one having a result. I think all the campaigns had planned out what they were going to do if they got the sort of springboard from Iowa of a victory and what they were going to do if they had the kind of, you know, the, the core base motivation of a defeat. But what almost no one planned for was what happened, which is that you had a kind of null result that left the party without anyone with clear momentum that shielded some folks like Joe Biden, who didn't do too well in Iowa, and that put the party in a position of having to find a way to build momentum later in the race. And that that dynamic, I think, pushed together a group of people who might otherwise have fought a longer battle and had a longer primary um, and has, has given us you know, from that campaign moment into the ultimate consolidation of the party behind Joe Biden, the the structures that were put in place to build the Biden campaign and sort of fold the progressive campaign infrastructure into it, these what were called unity committees that uh, the Biden campaign ran, those relationships that were forged in the the aftermath of, of Iowa and the consolidation of the primary build into Joe Biden's presidency. And we see those alliances, the sort of bridge from the White House to the progressives who had been Bernie Sanders supporters and who were working on the Hill after the election. We see that that um, that relationship being sort of the bulwark of what Biden's been able to accomplish in his presidency. And what one of the most interesting things we found is that you don't see a sort of centrists versus progressives dynamic on the Hill for the most part. You see those two, those the, the centrists of Biden's world acting in alliance with progressives in a sort of more radical wing, which you might call centrist too, of you know sort of Joe Manchin's of the world working as the disruptive force to that kind of alliance. And just to pivot off what Lupe was saying, you know, there's just been so many takes. And I think the two of us are really of the view that takes are a dime a dozen. And this book is not that. Uh, this is a deeply reported sort of history of the last half dozen years of the Democratic Party. And we were really big on A, basing it in hundreds of interviews with key players at every level and kind of letting them do the talking. And so when you see, you know, these Democrats come together, this this unity task force with progressives be kind of baked into Biden's campaign, we saw these characters on the Democratic side of the aisle who were really pivotal, and really important. And one of them, Kate, uh, is Pramila Jayapal, who you mentioned. And she just became a real player in the early days of enacting Joe Biden's agenda in the face of Joe Manchin and what we term these radical centrists. Josh, did you want to jump in? Yeah, I would. I just wanted to add. You know, the the chapter about Iowa is. I mean, for our listeners, is is really really good. And I mean, good in the sense of like absolutely excruciating. I mean, it was it was palpably painful to read, but because it's so well put together and there's so much in there, and and I think to a certain extent, I, I, I think most of us who follow politics, certainly democratic politics, have a recollection of that. But one of the dynamics of that moment was that it happened so quickly and so many things had to follow from it that there wasn't a lot of time to kind of sit back and say, wow, how'd that happen? Or what was that about? Or kind of like, what were the, what's the, you know, what's the shakeout from that? But it's, it's, I found it just 
just a fascinating narrative read because there's so much detail there. And you, as you say, it, it wasn't that, I mean, there's no question that on balance for the candidates who mattered, it hurt Sanders more than it hurt Biden. I mean, it, it probably helped Biden just because it kind of, it, it made inconclusive where he had taken a huge hit. But really, everybody was sort of like flattened by it. And, and you just see it unfolding. And it, again, it's just this, it's, it's, <laughs> I don't usually recommend to people things that are excruciating, but I mean, it's excruciating to, to read because you just see, you just see it all happening. And it's like, uh, you know, it's like a slow motion car wreck and you see blood spurting here and blood spurting there and the blood spurting from this person splashes onto this person's face. I mean, it's, 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 it's horrible, but you, um, but as the book unfolds, you see all the things that, that come out of there, you know, laying the groundwork f for, for what came after. And just, just to follow up on, on your other point, Hunter, about, you know, how close, Bernie came. He certainly did. And there was, I mean, again, I think there's a lot that happened in, in that campaign and that you unfold in the book that a lot of us, for a lot of us, it's compressed because that's when the COVID pandemic started. And a huge, and, and not the factor, but certainly a key contributing factor to how this really improbable result came together was COVID, was the onset of the COVID crisis, because there was this two weeks, I would say, when it really did seem like, okay, Bernie won. Like, and, and you see a lot of the sort of establishment, centrist, moderate, whatever you want to call it, wing of the party saying, okay, like, I, I, I guess this is how it's how we're going to do it. And, and uh, certainly a lot of people weren't happy about that. And that's why that's a big reason why it didn't happen. But at least in my read, that he's the guy, but then everybody kind of sees, well, he's the guy, but with like 30% of the party. So if everybody, you know, if, if everybody else consolidates uh, against uh, around someone else, he won't be the guy. And then that kind of happens. And all at once, COVID happens. And COVID is just sort of co someone coming into the fourth quarter of the Super Bowl and saying, we're calling it. We're, you know, <laughs> exactly. freeze. We're, we're going to end it right here. And that happened right when, you know, through this, people see that different way. A lot of factions in the party like, you know, let's go with Biden. And then COVID happened and the refs come in and say, okay, done. We got 10 minutes left in the fourth quarter, but we're done. And that's kind of what happened. Anyway, I just wanted to, those two points. But but for those listening, that that Iowa chapters is honestly worth getting the book on its own. And it's not just the Iowa chapter. And we should be clear, uh, that's running on TPM. Uh, you can read most of the Iowa chapter, but there's actually even more that I think, um, just for length reasons, um, probably are just going to be in the book. Um, and you can really see how it was, you know, a series of extraordinary events and errors. And one thing that I'm, I've really come to find after years of reporting on the campaign trail is, you know, a lot of this stuff is just office politics, right? It's just intrapersonal dramas and, you know, behind the scenes things uh, to the point that one of the pivotal moments in um, Iowa was the failure of a spreadsheet app. And yet, you know, they have 
massive, massive high stakes involved. Um, and especially with COVID as the ultimate kind of force majeure, it ended up compressing the timeline and magnifying the effect of all of that. And I think Bernie, one big Achilles heel he had both in 2016 and then again in 2020 as he was doing better, is so much of his strength lay on the West Coast. And that's just later in the primary schedule in a race where, you know, as we explain in the book, momentum is kind of the coin of the realm. Uh, so that's part of the reason that, you know, one of the big fallouts from this is, as, as Faz Shakir, Bernie's campaign manager, put it, quote unquote, cluster in Iowa that we saw in 2020, is that they are totally remaking the calendar for 2024. And, you know, as much as we're answering the questions that I think people have now, we're also pointing to, I think, some questions that people should have. Uh, and one of them that we're going to see unfold in the next eight weeks or so is what exactly is going to happen with Democrats in the primary season? Uh, and I think anyone who reads this book will come away realizing that it's much more up in the air in a very technical, mechanical sense than I think people realize. And just to, to tack on to that, I think... As you pointed out, Josh, there are these moments where a big event um, or an outside force can determine a lot of what happens in politics as much as we like to focus on individuals and their intentions and coalitions and voting. The, the dawn of COVID really puts the stopper on Bernie Sanders' campaign in a way that the candidate himself acknowledges. And there's no you know, no more primary after COVID. In the same way, I think what we found in Iowa, digging into the details and looking at, at, at all the blood and the gore, is that a lot of the blame falls on the Iowa process itself. That Iowa is so complicated, so difficult to administer and run, you know, in this sort of jury-rigged manner that it produced the non-result more than anyone's intention did. Um, and that that Iowa process is something that the Democratic Party is now reaching in and rejiggering. They've, they've taken Iowa out of recognition as the, the sort of first in the nation contest. Um, and they've They've also moved around their calendar so that New Hampshire will be alongside some other states and a, and a different state is going first. There's a lot changing in these processes that are ultimately very, very important to what sort of outcomes we see from the American electoral system. Uh, and a lot of it's happened behind the scenes. And we've tried in our own small way to sort of lift the curtain on what's going on there and give people a preview of what's likely to happen in 2024. You know, it's it, it's it's funny. I I was refreshing my memory, and and it's possible that this what I'm remembering is is a product of that compression. But some of you may remember there was this not press conference, you know, kind of rally where I believe this was the one where Amy Klobuchar and Pete Buttigieg endorsed. Biden. I may be off about that, but if I'm off, I'm only off by a few days. And it was the one that some of you will remember. Simone Sanders tackled this protester who came on, like Biden comes up, some, I, I don't know if it was, if it was a, a Sanders adjacent protester or just some kind of, you know, more, more left than Biden protester, but he comes up, tries to get on the stage and Simone Sanders comes barreling through and like tackles <laughs> the guy, like something out of professional wrestling. And again, I think that was the one where the where those two endorsed. But if it wasn't, that was a few days later. And that was like the last rally of the campaign, basically. And if it, I looked it up right now, it was March 3rd. So maybe there was, maybe there's a bit more, but it captures the way that COVID just, you know, kind of brought the kibosh down on the whole thing. And that was it. And kind of, you know, that was what it was. Yeah. So I think 
moving past the campaign a little bit, you guys touched on this at the beginning, but Democrats in disarray as like a trope is so common, you know, that people are like always kind of complaining about it on Twitter. But usually the idea behind Democrats in disarray is that the like unreasonable, shrill, progressive wing is like refusing to live in reality and and has these wish lists that are just non, uh, you know, that they can't live in the same world where you legislate kind of thing. But during the first two years of Biden's term, you know, all the consternation during the big legislative lifts originated in the kind of right wing of the party, right? The quote unquote centrists, the quote unquote moderates, the the cinemas, the mansions, the Gottheimers, like those layers. Can you talk a little bit about that dynamic and how much of the kind of relatively smooth relationship between the White House and the progressive wing was like presaged by these, you know, campaign time kind of um, cooperatives? So that's a really great observation, and it really is one of the fundamental things at play in this book. You know, as Lupe was saying, the forge of the campaign uh, and then the pandemic on top of that kind of brought these folks together. But I also think that that what brought them together was this shared realization that Donald Trump was an existential threat to democracy. And certainly we talk about that a lot on TPM. Um, And that's something that I think... um, most Democrats were extremely aware of. And so you saw, you know, progressives in part because Biden and particularly Ron Klain had built these bridges for them to do so, come on board and sort of confront that with Biden. But then at the same time, kind of counterintuitively, you see at this moment when it kind of seemed like they all had this shared goal, the Salt Caucus and Godheimer and No Labels and Mansion scuttle a lot of Joe Biden's early agenda. Um, And that's where we sort of came away with that phrase, radical centrists. Um, And I think it's really interesting because it is counterintuitive to the way cable news, I think in particular, talks about this dynamic. I mean, a big pet peeve of mine is just how much the sort of never Trump wing of the Republican Party dominates the discourse in this this Trump era. And, you know, (laughs) A, I question how much real constituency they have, but B, I question, you know, when they weigh in on the Democratic conversation, how much of that is in good faith. And I think they do set up the conversation as sort of you outlined, Kate, where it's like, oh, you know, progressives are the problem and Gen Z is unrealistic and this and that. And really, they work together to get things done legislatively with Biden while the roadblocks to his agenda came from Manchin, came from moderates in the House. And I think the big existential threats that we're talking about in terms of questions going forward in 2024 are these sort of third party things, whether it be, you know, Manchin running with no labels or, or someone else. So, yeah, I think digging into that dynamic was interesting because we found how Democrats are more together and less in disarray um, in some senses, uh, but how there are real fault lines. They're just not the ones I think people conventionally expected. I, th- I think, you know, one, one thing there and this, this, what you're saying is so accurate that it kind of the, the, the definitions get a little off that in some ways, what we have talked about in the Biden area as like the moderates or the cent or the centrists are like a splinter group from what we used to call the establishment wing of the party or the centrists or, you know, whatever that is. Because, you know, one of the, if you look, not even someone like me who kind of looks back to the 90s and the aughts and stuff like that, even if you look at a, at a, at a much um, more compressed time frame, you know, one of, the, one of the biggest 
kind of people I know online, uh, you know, against the mansions and the cinema were the guys who run Third Way, right? Which is like the classic, you know, moderate century, whatever you want to call it, triangulating wing of the Democratic Party. So whereas, you know, the big story and the very narrow, the very narrow margins that they were able to pass what they did pass was both factions of the party working together and then a couple stragglers who because of the narrow margins were able to block a lot of stuff and i mean again it's just so few people it's like even if you include the people in the house you're talking about a dozen people total you know but between both houses of of congress and and you know that basic alliance being we're going to basically work with bernie's agenda but we're but we biden will do it like you let us do it, we'll do your stuff, and that's kind of how we're gonna. That's that's the basis of that alliance. So let's let's jump to. I, I thought it would be interesting to discuss where we are now because now we are actually seeing, at least for now, at least for the moment, as long as this conflict um, in Gaza and Israel uh, plays out, we're actually seeing a lot of those divisions play out in a pretty big way, in a way that they didn't end up doing in 2020 and through a lot of the Biden administration. It's not exactly centrists and progressives. It's it's kind of it's it's part of that. It's also generational. Um, but you're seeing it in a big way with a a a lot of constituencies in the Democratic Party being very upset about what is what has been unfolding in Gaza over the last six weeks and not only upset about it, blaming Joe Biden for it in a domestic context. So how with what you what you looked at in this book how do you see that and how do you like are those um are those alliances ones that over time looking forward to 2020 you know to the to next year's election a year out from now can those repair this breach is that is is that strong is that strength great enough to pull this back together or is, or is this kind of going in a new direction now CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Well, uh, we are, as, as Hunter said, we're not, we try not to be pundits in promoting this book. And we are, we, we know that takes are a dime a dozen, especially about conflicts uh, that are currently raging. And so I, in my thinking about it, I'll try, try not to be opinionated, but to, to stick with, with what our reporting uh, might add to this, which is that Joe Biden has been unpopular. I mean, ever since the withdrawal from Afghanistan, I think we've seen him steadily in the lower range of what presidents get for approval ratings. And that has not changed, you know, for years. And at the same time, we have watched and reported on his administration 
moving the ball forward in the ways they can with the narrow margins they have, knowing that a lot of people are angry at them, knowing that they don't have too much of a bully pulpit with their approval numbers. Uh, and we've seen them make, you know, a number of accomplishments that I think going into the reporting, if at least if I was asked to handicap it, I wouldn't have thought they could do. Um, where, you know, the Build Back Better Act, we cover this in, in great detail in the book, um, you know, it has all of these sort of deaths and rebirths. It, it goes on for months and months and months. And ultimately, they have the big crisis where Joe Manchin basically throws them out of his office and they can't get anything done. And then a couple months later, they come back and they figure out a way to produce a package that's not everything, but that has a big climate package, has a big uh, legislative achievement. And the reason I'm going down this tangent is that I watch sort of the cable news drama about this. I see how angry people are, how outraged they are, and you know, I feel it myself. And at the same time, I see progressives demanding a ceasefire, and then I see a ceasefire happen that's brokered by this administration. Um, and it may not be everything people want. It may not be the full, you know, the, the uh, emotional delivery that I think some presidents are better at than Joe Biden. But I do see this administration getting things done. And I think their political challenge is how do you bottle that and sell it as a political win, especially in a circumstance where people just are not that fond of you. Uh, and uh, I think that is the riddle that Biden has has struggled with. And at the same time, has also, you know, despite his low approval ratings, has achieved uh, a pretty good result in midterms for a first term president and has achieved a lot of legislative wins despite these challenges. So I, I see it as sort of a, a continuation of the dynamic we've seen throughout this presidency of an unpopular administration that manages to get things done. I also would throw in there, you know, uh, one thing that we touch on in this book, um, Josh, you were pointing out how it's not entirely sort of progressives versus centrists. And I think one of the figures uh, who has shown that most starkly on Gaza is Bernie Sanders, you know, and his position really is in line with Hillary Clinton's where, you know, he is not um, fully for a ceasefire. And his sort of more nuanced support for a two-state solution while calling for the military eradication of Hamas is actually more in keeping with kind of the liberal Jewish perspective than the larger progressive perspective. And the book closes with uh, our interview with Bernie, where we touch a bit on his Jewish identity. Um, and I think it's really interesting because it's always been something that he has been reluctant to talk about. And as a fellow Jew from Brooklyn, um, I've always tried to get him and push him to talk about it. And we sort of came as close to that as we could in this book. Um, and the takeaway I got both from Bernie and his staff is that, you know, Bernie grew up in a Jewish immigrant community in Brooklyn. His mother died when he was very young. And that experience is really what sort of radicalized him around, you know, pursuing universal health care and fighting for the working class. At the same time, he literally physically ran away from New York and has like never been personally able to talk about this painful chapter of his life to the point that one of the revelations we have in here is that, you know, his staff, you know, 
was basically begging him to do this in 2020 to the point that they crafted what they called the quote unquote human Bernie memo, sort of saying like, please, like tell your own story. Um, but I think one thing we are seeing on Gaza, at least when it comes for Bernie, is, you know, a little bit of an indication that he is informed by that Jewish perspective as much as he has his own progressive take on that. I, I think I think also that that if you, if you look at his bio, as you said, he he's he has not just not talked about this a lot. He's clearly gone to gone to some lengths not to talk about it a lot. But if you look at the at the scope of his life and when he does either speak about it or or you just look at the you look at his biography, time he spent in Israel, whatever, you can kind of see that this is this is not an incidental part of his kind of. I don't want to say personal identity because that's loaded. His personal experience o- over the course of over the course of his life. Let me just to follow up with with what I just asked. As as I said, I think what is going on in the in the Democratic Party right now, and for people who might be listening at, at some point in the future, this is the twenty seventh of November. Uh, we're kind of at least for the moment in what may be the first ceasefire. Uh, of maybe of 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 a few in the Israel Hamas war, but as I said, that that to the extent we have a division now, it's not just progressive centrist. It's clearly generational. It may be more generational than conventionally ideological, but that issue of that generational issue is going to be a big one in in 2024. I think we saw even even before uh, October 7th. We saw that 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 generational divide was maybe the biggest challenge that Democrats had going into into 2024. Just to, just in the sense that you know we a lot of a lot of poll analysis and commentary has talked about that you you've just got a lot of young, sort of more leftish, but maybe more just disaffected than than le- leftish voters who are. Even more disaffected, they they are people who have kind of been in the Democratic coalition, but maybe they're quite, you know questioning it again. Going back to what you learned reporting on this book and how this played out in 2020, what can what light does that possibly shed on on what we're going to see in 2024? And I guess I'd put it most specifically: the ability of uh, for lack of a better word, progressive elites. And here, I just mean that in the sense of people who hold office, stuff like that. I'm not using it in a qualitative or, or certainly not pejorative sense, that those people can mobilize those voters if they choose to in 2024. That's an excellent question. Uh, and I think one that I, I still have a lot of questions about. I think, you know, one thing we didn't touch on in Gaza that I think is is. Uh, the you know Hunter Hunter's point goes along with this is that there there have been a number of progressives who've not taken um, you know have not fallen into one particular camp on the conflict in the Middle East. I, I think of Senator Fetterman, for instance, um, who's been starkly pro-Israel in his um, political messaging and who you know from what inputs I have from what I can tell online has faced a lot of disaffection from people who had been his supporters. Um, who who are not not feeling the same way about the conflict that he is uh, and that I think there there is always a question of you know when you have a party in power a party that 
has a sitting administration and there are members who are maybe to the left of the administration who are working with it um, and who are you know exercising their own electoral uh, their their own uh, official duties what risks do they face of losing the support of the progressive movement at large and, and fracturing you know what is always a, a difficult coalition to keep together and and finding when they come to the next election that they'll have fewer people to call on. And I think that is a question that remains to be answered. Hunter may have a more specific view on this, but I think there's, you know, whether progressives feel like they've gotten a good deal out of the Biden administration and out of their representatives in Congress is, I think, still something that's up in the air. And, you know, as reporters, we can document what has actually gotten done, but we can't we can't predict how people are going to feel about it. One thing, you know, that I think the book does capture is just how much this question of the youth vote is sort of a holy grail for Democrats. Um, and we literally early on in the book, I don't want to reveal too much, but we, we get a sense of uh, President Obama's mindset on that um, and how much that was on the minds of uh, many of the newer members on the Hill. And it makes sense because, you know, a fundamental thing here is that if you look at the, Democrat, the demographics of the country, you know, this should be no problem for Joe Biden, right? By and large, we have a young, diverse, liberal country, but the result uh, hasn't always shaken out that way. And part of that is the electoral college, but part of that is this question of enthusiasm and turnout. Another thing that I think we capture in a bit of a granular sense is sort of what Kate was talking about before, just how these divisions don't always break up as simplistically as the conventional wisdom posits that they do. And, you know, what I mean is, for example, when we look at Joe Biden's grand win in South Carolina in 2020, um, and that was really, you know, the origin of the, you know, story that it was black voters that propelled him to victory. You were even seeing in that race that actually younger black voters, even in a relatively conservative state like South Carolina, were actually breaking a bit for Sanders. And it wasn't that simple. Really notably, uh, Bernie Sanders in the 2020 primary seemed to resonate with Latino voters in a way that, you know, Joe Biden uh, seems to have been failing to do. And I think a rightward drift among Latino voters and, and Joe Biden's failure to sort of match the enthusiasm that Bernie had in that demographic is a big, big story in 2024. And so the fact that Joe Biden essentially needs high youth and minority turnout to win is, I think, part of what makes this Gaza question so, so crucial. Uh, because as Josh has been saying, you see the youth, you know, sort of demanding something that whether or not Biden has been able to deliver it, they are certainly, you know, not feeling satisfied. Uh, and then also, I think this polling on Arab American voters is particularly crucial, especially since, you know, that is a huge demographic within Michigan. And, you know, within the dynamic of the Electoral College, that is one of the states that matters most. Um, and the fact that we're seeing them you know, really break away from Biden uh, so far is really something that could be crucial. So I think, you know, young voters, voters of color, those are the key to a second Joe Biden victory. Um, and Gaza is one of those situations that can really, you know, throw that into chaos. I, th I think also, you know, there's, um, as you said, when we talk about, you know, 
centrists and moderates and progressives, these catch-alls gloss over a lot. And one of the things that is within progressive politics in general in the United States, perhaps in other countries too, that you kind of mean two things. There's on the one hand, electoral progressive politics, and that's the squad that is the progressive caucus in the House. It's people who are operating in electoral politics. And you also have for lack of a better word, the progressive politics of the street. And by that, I mean protest movements and stuff like that. Now, these overlap a lot, but in in basic ways, they're different. And you saw some of that during the Trump administration writ large in in the protest politics of the Trump era. You saw it particularly in in June of 2020 with uh, the protests around the the murder of George Floyd. And I think what you... And so there's always there, you know, do they... How much do they diverge? And I, I... I think kind of what we're seeing right now is certainly those two parts of progressive politics in the United States are uh, directionally on the same page right now about what's happening in Gaza. But it's it's really the sort of the progressive politics of the street that is in, in some ways kind of seems to be driving the car right now in, in, in the sense of having a kind of totalizing protest that basically says too bad about co- coalitional politics this is this is worth breaking coalitional politics and that's kind of i think where we're going to you know how that how that shakes out whether it's you know kind of who is who's running that is is going to say is going to tell us a lot about how you know 2024 functions I think you're right that, you know, this tension between electoral and protest politics is a really defining thing for progressives. And one area where we saw that, and you can see that in great detail in the book, is inside of the Democratic Socialists of America. Um, And we have a chapter that kind of looks at how pivotal they were to the rise of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And within that moment, you can see them have sort of an existential crisis over whether to even get involved in electoral politics. And, you know, this woman who ultimately has become kind of the face of democratic socialism in America is someone they weren't necessarily on board with embracing because they didn't see her as socialist enough, in part due to litmus tests that included, you know, the boycott, divestment and sanctions movement, because they have been one of the biggest voices on that front. So I think, you know, the rise of groups like that both shows the continuing influence of, of you know, protest-style politics, but it also shows the limitations. I mean, they, they in that instance, managed to get involved in electoral politics, but it, by nature, is sort of a struggle for them. And I think we tried to capture some of those conversations behind the scenes so people can understand how those dynamics play out in a real practical sense. Uh, to loop together another kind of current topic of discussion with some narratives um, from your guys' book. You talk a lot about how important, you know, the kind of caps lock narrative is to campaigns and how so many moving pieces kind of build those, much of which seem to be kind of out of control of the candidate. I think part of the reason the Iowa caucus chapter is, as Josh says, excruciating is because you have these um, pressures of the Biden or the Sanders staff being aware that with every passing hour, they're both losing fundraising opportunities and kind of losing the opportunity to shape what's going on and to shape it in terms that are kind of 
most favorable for Bernie. And right now, how do you think this kind of fixation on Biden's age fits into that dynamic? And is this something kind of based on your reporting that you think can be overcome? You know, can his progressive alliances help him overcome it? I mean, what do you think of kind of that current moment? I think there's... um... There's a constant between the 2020 election and the 2024 election in that (laughs) Biden was already old in 2020. There was plenty of talk about him being old, him being stuck in the basement, him, you know, and the further right you went in the kind of commentary you listened to, the more you heard about, you know, the sort of Rudy Giuliani conspiracy conspiracy theories about Biden being a, a puppet, a Manchurian candidate who doesn't understand anything and is just sort of propped up by advisors and dark forces. Uh, and so I do think that there is at least a familiarity to that trope and and we've seen a a Biden campaign overcome it, um, even in the challenging circumstances of a, a pandemic and a lockdown, um, where they they faced, I think, some serious criticism about his age and his capacity, even in the last presidential campaign. Those obviously those concerns haven't gone away. Um, they are a part of everyone's um, you know, it's a and I think it's kind of an easy thing to talk about when you talk about American politics, the age of the politicians is an easy thing for everyone to relate to, for everyone to understand. And it is becomes a part of everyone's sort of baseline analysis of where the campaign is and is going. Um, and you know, I, I, um, so I, I don't think it's absolutely clear they'll overcome it, but I also think it's probably the most familiar challenge that they're dealing with um, in their political in their list of political problems right now. Uh, and they are fortunate and pr- probably facing a Republican nominee who's almost as old and who will take that issue or at least make that issue a little bit less potent when people point out that Donald Trump is, you know, 77 or 78 during the campaign. A spring chicken, right? That's right. Hunter, did you want to jump in? Yeah, I, also, I think also like, you know, as much as our book answers the question of how we ended up with Joe Biden, you know, this series of lucky coincidences and improbable alliances that helped this, you know, guy make it through on his third third try. Uh, we also are looking at how we didn't end up with Kamala Harris. Um, and she's a big character in all of this. And I think, you know... There's an alternate universe where there was a very seamless handoff after the first term between Joe Biden and his much younger, female, diverse vice president. And when you start to look into her campaign and how it imploded, which we do also in you know sort of excruciating detail, you can get a sense of why that didn't happen. But again, I think this is something where you know we are not sort of reducing her to the cable news caricature. And as much as Kamala Harris has had a lot of struggles, uh, we also capture you know how she's been a bit of a savvy operator and how she's tried to assert herself within the White House. Um, And I think one of the things, as much as their relationship has not been totally smooth, uh, one of the things that I found really interesting was we kind of heard contemporaneously from White House sources about how Kamala Harris was a big driver in making abortion central to uh, Biden's argument out there in the past couple midterm races. And it's been extremely, extremely successful for them. So I think one thing, you know, 
Lupe is absolutely right. We do need to recognize that Trump is almost as old as Biden. Um, and one thing Biden has that Donald Trump doesn't is these allies and surrogates, whether it be Obama, whether it be Kamala Harris, whether it be the squad in Jayapal, who I think will be assets for him as he confronts that issue on the trail. So I want to wrap up with two kind of big picture questions. The first is, how would you describe where the party is now in terms of this kind of push and pull between, you know, the the old establishment guard and and the progressive wing? Array, but fragile array. Uh, I think that there's, uh, you know, I, I, I hate to, to be the Leonardo DiCaprio pointing at the screen moment, but I do think there is this fragile truce uh, between progressives and, and centrists. And I, I think that what you've seen is that this sort of, sort of centrists who are not, you know, who aren't being Joe Manchin, who aren't being disruptors in the middle of the party, but who are trying to figure out how to govern, have been moving more and more towards the progressive side of the party. And I do think it's part of a sort of generational move that pushes the Democratic Party a little bit further to the left, not as far left as, as some of the folks we interviewed would like. But I do think that you see the party moving in a more progressive direction in a very very painfully slow and glacial way uh, that that I think will resolve as as you in sort of a natural way as you see young members of Congress get elected as you see the leadership turnover finally in Congress and a new Democratic leader um, head up the House conference that I do think progressive ideas are are likely to be more and more mainstream as the Democratic Party moves into the future. At the same time, I you know I, I do think that. Progressives always struggle to hold on to the mainstream and also to hold on to their identity as progressives. Because every time that Overton window moves a little bit to the left, you see more people who are further out to the left who are suddenly more relevant in your politics. And so we'll see whether in 20 years I'm I'm right or wrong that people recognize the Democratic Party as having moved left. Um, but I do I do think that you know compared to where things were in Congress in the early 2000s when my political consciousness was just sort of coming online, I do think we're in a much more progressive place amongst the Democrats who've been elected. I think I think also one thing that is clarifying and, and is sort of implicit in, in, in a lot of your book is that two things we conflate is progressive policy on the one hand and movement politics. And they overlap to a significant degree, certainly now when when the institutional Democratic Party is slowly moving to the left, that is really the sort of the division point, I think, in many cases, that the Democratic Party has moved very consistently to the left over the last 15 years. So by any by any definition, that's clear. But what it will always be um, antipathetic to and uh, resist is movement politics by definition. Because movement politics, in a very basic sense, just doesn't work with the way that um, institutional parties work in the US two-party system. And that, I th you know, you see that division point come out a lot in, again, I think in a lot of ways implicitly in your book, but certainly, uh, you know, uh, today and what we've seen under in you know in the Biden years. I also think it's important to note that as we talk about the party moving to the left, we're not just talking about Joe Biden sort of being pulled along, right? This is a guy who's had his own vision 
And, you know, I, I was at the launch of Joe Biden's campaign. It was sort of, you know, in Pittsburgh, you know, surrounded by labor and labor has been really core to what he's done. Uh, and I think both in terms of policy standpoint, particularly with the focus on labor and infrastructure, but also in terms of these things he's done behind the scenes that we chronicle, such as the unity task force, such as, um, you know, having a chief of staff, Ron Klain, who was on the phone with the leader of the Progressive Caucus, uh, Pramila Jayapal. Biden is a transitional figure. He's literally a man of a different era, but both in terms of policy and behind the scenes, he set the stage for progressives to take the reins going forward. And of course, all of that is just assuming we do have a democracy <laughs> in eight years from now. But but if we do, I think, you know, Biden will be recognized as someone who kind of quite literally effectuated this truce and paved the way for, you know, the heirs of the Bernie revolution to kind of move into the their next roles in government. Yeah. So I, I was just going to say, I think a lot of that is built, as you'll see, hopefully you'll see in the book, um, is built off of the reaction that the party had to this disaster in 2016. And that is the sort of the jumping off point for all of our reporting is the the Bernie movement, I think, showed them, showed the Democratic Party's more centrist elements that they had to react or face, you know, a, a truly marginalizing moment. Um, and I think that the story of our book is largely how they reacted and how how that um, the outcome in 2016, both of the primary and ultimately Trump being elected in the general, has affected the Democratic Party. And that's sort of what Hunter and I set out to chronicle is not to do another Trump book, not to talk about what the the, the sort of the great evil uh, in Mordor, but to talk more about you know how how this sort of fellowship between progressives and, and centrists came to pass, and and how they're trying to fight to preserve our democracy. So the last thing I want to ask you guys is: Do, do you think, to any degree, the unity of the Democratic Party? kind of depends on Trump. I mean, it certainly kind of emerged out of his election. And, you know, if so, what do you think happens like when, you know, whether by prison or death or what have you, he at some point goes away from American politics? It's an excellent question. I think I think there is undoubtedly um, we have been living in the you know the the reaction to Trump's election for seven years, and that um, has absolutely shaped the Democratic Party going forward. I think my perception is that it's also shaped a Republican Party that isn't going back to um, the sort of more staid Bob Dole kind of Republican presidential candidates that we've seen in the past. That they are in, as I see it, a dance with this sort of authoritarian impulse. And whether it's Trump who's on the stage or not, I think they are they are going to see that journey continue. Um, that's my again. This, this that sounds much more like a take, um, and I, I, I didn't want to offer a take, but I, that is my perception of Republicans is that they're not they they have found an affection for that style of politics that I don't think is going to die with Trump or go to prison with Trump or whatever. However, Trump leaves the stage. I'm not sure it's going to leave with him. Yeah, I think your question, Kate, really gets to a fundamental tension within the Democratic Party. I mean, I, I, I really agree with Lupe's 
characterization that um, Democrats are in array, but it's a fragile array. Um, you know, and we've we've chronicled this alliance, but it's a shaky alliance. And we go through all of the reasons for that, you know, whether it be sort of personality differences among the progressive wing, these these raging radical centrists, um, or what I was alluding to earlier, I mean, just the idea that, you know, Democrats haven't settled on a primary schedule or process going forward. And I, I promise you that's going to be a fight, um, sort of as we saw in 2008, the last time they tried to shake this up. So there's all these reasons for Democrats to fight. And, you know, will they give into that if they lose the unifying threat of Trump? I think what it comes down to is that with this authoritarian bent, you know, Republicans are really leaning into this sort of minority rule um, fear governance. And it's easy to sort of hold together when you're kind of thinking of a almost great replacement kind of, <laughs> you know, us against the world mentality. Democrats have numbers on their side, but that will always be harder because you're trying to bring together a diverse coalition. So, you know, that is the fundamental dynamic that we'll all be watching going forward. And I do hope, you know, people find in reading this kind of recent history of the Democratic Party that they can understand it a lot better. All right. So once again, the book is The Truce, Progressive Centrist and the Future of the Democratic Party out on January 23rd, 2024. And keep your eye on the TPM website for a tantalizing, excruciating nibble of that book to come around the same time. Hunter and Lupe, thank you so much for coming on today. Oh, thank you so much for, for having us and, and for all the kind things you said about our book. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, guys. We really, really enjoyed it. Belaboring the Point with Kate Riga is a TPM podcast. The show is hosted by me, reporter Kate Riga. The show is produced by the excellent Jackie Wilhelm. Thanks to our good friend, Why Not Jansveld, for our podcast theme song. And thanks to our TPM members who make this possible. Rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen.